Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jamila Rizvi and I am joined by Astrid Edwards. Astrid, how are you? I am doing really well today and I am so excited to be uh, talking about a really happy topic. We are speaking about a happy subject today. I hope you are feeling comfortable and comforted, Astrid, because we are going to be talking about comfort. I can't wait. Astrid, when do you feel most comfortable in your life? What brings you a sense of snug, warm, I am in my happy place? I feel comfortable around my friends and family and in what is going to be a surprise to nobody listening to this podcast. I actually take great comfort in reading a good book. We're shocked. We're shocked. We're shocked and appalled because we don't like books around here. Not interested in any of them. (laughs) But the reason is a good book, particularly a book that I have read before, It's like talking to an old friend. It's like having a conversation or feeling like there is a companion with me, even if I am physically alone. So I'm not just saying it because we have a book podcast. I really do take comfort in a good book. I still remember my little sister when she was about eight years old, I would have been 11 and she had just finished Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. And she walked into the living room and said, Sometimes I just feel sad because I remember that Jo isn't alive or dead. She's just not real. And that is a really real and valid feeling that your sister had. She was mourning someone who never was. We are, however, very much here and we're going to get into our discussion of comfort. Astrid, our non-fiction book for today is... I'm about to take a very deep breath because this is not so much a title as it is a sentence... <gasps> The things you can see only when you slow down, how to be calm and mindful in a fast paced world by Heimin Sunim, who is a Zen Buddhist teacher and writer who also has over 2 million followers on social media, which to me jars with the idea of being a Zen Buddhist monk, right? I also noticed that. And I had a question, how can you be on social media, but also a Zen Buddhist monk? And as I read the book, I kind of figured out how it works for him. I think one of the loveliest things about this book is it doesn't feel preachy. It doesn't feel like Heimin is sitting above me, all knowing and enlightened, telling me how to live my life better. It feels like he is someone with enormous wisdom to share, but at the same time, he feels a bit more like one of us maybe a little bit. There are definitely others who feel the same way because his first book has been translated into more than 35 different languages and has sold over 4 million copies. That is impressive by any standard around the world. I wanted to kick off Astrid. Are you someone who is good at being mindful? Are you like, do you do yoga? Do you have a mindfulness practice as people are now saying? I have two answers for that. In my current life, no, I am not good at being mindful and I have zero exercise practice, zero yoga practice and zero mindfulness practice. However, this book reminded me of something and this is a weird thing to be reminded of, but I once did the 10-day Vipassana retreat. You did? This is new news. 
Yeah, I uh, didn't talk for 10 days. I went off literally into the mountains. And the reason why wow. I forget about it is that actually happened a month before I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So I always forget about it, but I did once really want to try a lot harder and learn how to be mindful. Wow, that is fascinating. I think also because it's like you had a little boat crash, which would have been interesting, and then you were on the Titanic. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of you know, the scale of things that happen in our lives throw the others away. What was it like being silent for 10 days? I mean, first, did you do it? Were you silent? I did do it. I can tell you that day four was really hard and I cried in front of lots of people that I didn't know, but other people were crying too, and we were all just contemplating life in a very safe environment. And this book reminded me of the beauty of not rushing and not overthinking and not stressing out and just sitting with it. The good, the bad, the I don't know what this is, but I'm just going to sit with it for a while. And I don't know, I just, I have been reminded of something that I need to go and take the time to remember. I am not someone who likes a quiet life or a slower paced life. Even when I'm being forced to have those things, I don't enjoy it. I am someone who used to skip the mindfulness practice at the end of yoga because I used to get the giggles. So for me, this was trying to force myself into a headspace I knew would be good for me. And I was surprised by how much I really did enjoy it. I think because this kind of book is sort of forced into that self-help moniker sort of space, I straight away go, oh, no, not me, not my thing. But this book is different. I I think it really did force me to examine parts of my life and parts of the way I live and think in ways that didn't feel preachy or gross and where I felt like I was really doing some important work rather than the kind of, you know, Tony Robbins genre (laughs) of self-help. It's organised into these quite short chapters that have a quick story to begin with and then there are bite-sized paragraphs of life advice. So I was saying to you, Astrid, I really kind of dipped in and dipped out of it. Did you do the same? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am a person who normally sits down and just reads a whole book in one sitting, maybe two, and this book refused to let me do that. This is a book to dip in and dip out of. It is a book to take your time with. It is a book to not even necessarily read in order. You could read a chapter that kind of spoke to you at any point. You could read the chapter on the future or the chapter on relationships. It doesn't matter. And that's a lesson for me in and of itself. I don't have to rush reading a book or I don't have to read at my usual speed. I can just browse a book and enjoy it. And I don't know, I left it out on the kitchen table so I could just pick it up and spend a minute or two with it. And oddly comforting. Yes, I think I, I think that's true. I found it comforting as well. And I found myself putting little bits and pieces into practice. There's probably, what, 300 little quotes of wisdom in this book, maybe more. Three of them have maybe stuck with me and there'll be a different three, I'm sure, to the ones that stuck with you. But one of them that really has stayed with me has changed my approach to social media and particularly to Twitter, which is normally a place where I jump on and kind of have lots of feelings and thoughts very quickly without thinking them through. I'm extremely reactive on Twitter. I am the worst thing about Twitter, but that's not true. Donald Trump's the worst thing. But there was one particular quote in this beautiful book that is, maturity comes with experience. One lesson of maturity is that we should not take our thoughts too seriously and must learn to curb our ego and see the bigger picture. Being right isn't nearly as important as being happy together. 
And I have been trying to apply that quote before I tweet my many opinions on what's wrong with the world and also before I share my many opinions of what's wrong with my family. And it is definitely leading to a more zenful life. (laughs) Both of those sound good, Jam. I would say we would have both picked out different quotes that spoke to us, but I suspect that if I or any other reader who comes back to this book picks it up, depending on what's happening in life at that moment, different quotes will speak to the same people. Like it's going to be a book that constantly gives a little to the reader in a different way each time. Jam, today we are talking about comfort. And when I thought of a novel that I associated with comfort, I actually remembered reading Americana, a novel by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Now, this was first published in 2013 and I first read it in 2017. And in this episode on comfort, I found myself wanting to go back into this world because it's just a beautiful read, beautiful language. And this is actually a love story. It is a love story, but I've got to say, I was a little bit surprised when you chose this novel for the theme of comfort, because while it's a beautifully told story, I found some of it quite upsetting. Tell me about what makes it comforting for you. It's kind of a long novel, so it means... I mean, not long by, you know, for example, Min Jin Lee, who we interviewed in season one, but it is a substantial novel and I really appreciate that. It's more time to go into a world and meet characters. I really did enjoy spending time with these characters. Uh, it's a love story. So we have Ifemalu and Abinzi and they are a young Nigerian couple in love. And when they are young, they want more than Nigeria can offer. And so they set their sights on traveling to America. And this is a pre 9-11 America. And Ifemalu makes it to study in the United States. She goes to a very ritzy, fancy school in the United States. But because um, America is not particularly welcoming to black men, Abinze doesn't get into the United States. And so they go their separate ways and he heads off to the UK. So, you know, the beautiful love story at the heart of this novel takes a, a wide detour and they experience different things in life. And that part of the story, it's not comforting, but at the same time, these are very real stories and... I'm not so much of a fairies and rainbows and buttercups kind of reader. I like a real story that has heart and it's the heart that I find comforting. It does. And I've got to say upon kind of my flicking through reread more recently, one of the things that really struck me is the differentiation that our author makes between being African-American and being American-African. And that felt incredibly important, I think, and it speaks to the current moment in 2020, right? The idea that an African-American is a black person with these kind of long ancestral lines living in the United States, most likely with slave ancestors at some point. And yet, if you think of an American-African, we're talking about someone who has been born and raised in Africa, who has now made America their home. And that kind of cross-cultural distinction and playing with language, I think, is something that I remember just loving when reading this book. Do you think the discussion and dissection of race stands up now, what, six years, seven years later? I really do. Now, I am speaking as a white reader. And when I first read Americana a couple of years ago, this was one of the first novels that presented this conundrum to me. Now, I had never experienced it. It wasn't part of my lived experience. And I was 
my reading obviously hadn't been wide enough and I hadn't come across that kind of clear and present distinction in the literature I read. So I appreciate it at the time, but I think it stands up really well in 2020. And coming back to this book now, post-Black Lives Matter, I actually thought of the book that Julia Gillard and Ngozi Okonjo-Awila just published that I know you've read, Women and Leadership, because they actually go and specifically interview the first two female leaders of Africa, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Joyce Banda, and they talk about this same thing, experiencing sexism and misogyny, but not racism. But then as soon as they get to the world stage, then racism just everywhere they look. I agree. And there are so many lovely moments of language and I I only did a flick through read going back but there were so many little moments that I I kind of went oh wow you are we are really reading someone in terms of Adichie's writing she's ahead of her time right and of course we know that black Americans have been having the conversations around the Black Lives Matter movement for a whole lot longer before white Americans and the rest of the world sat up and took notice but in the book she talks about the intersection of race and class without using the word intersectionality and talks about how people say phrases like blacks and poor whites because the assumption there is that if you're black you're poor because you sort of just jumped in together instead of saying poor blacks and poor whites. There's another point in the book where she talks about how people are reluctant to use the word racist, that we talk about moments being racially charged because we don't want to say that was hella racist, right? And there are very few people on this earth, I imagine, who think themselves to be racist. And yet most of us, certainly those of us in Australia who aren't black or First Nations people like you and myself, are accidentally, implicitly committing racist acts on the regular. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And more to the point, have we both, and I am talking for myself, we would have been racist in the past without even realising it. Absolutely. And I think there are there were moments perhaps of comfort. And again, I found, it, I found this an odd choice for comfort, but the more I talk to you about it, I think the more I see it. There are moments of comfort for me in the reread of feeling seen. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a black woman, but I am a person of colour. And there are some beautiful cross-cultural moments in this book. There's this scene where Ephemalu is trying to, she's trying to fit in and trying to learn how to be American and to be one of the chicks who I wrote down the phrase is drinking beer and discussing Toby Maguire at a frat party. And she's just trying to kind of join in and talk about having a pre-approved credit card. And she doesn't know what anyone's going on about. And there's this line that the character says, how did they know when to laugh and what to laugh about? And I have had moments like that as a kid and as a teenager where I sort of saw jarring points between my own experience and white Australian girls experiences but also as a kid growing up between cultures I would also talk to Indian or Pakistani or other subcontinent friends and my experience didn't match theirs either like I always felt like I was trying to fit in to someone else's world and feeling seen is the ultimate example of comfort. Feeling seen for everybody is so important and look, we've somehow managed to make this a very serious topic even though we are discussing comfort so I want to come back to the love story this is probably the only time do ever. it do it tell me about love I will be coming back to the love story but if Emily does very well in the United States and eventually she does decide having started her career well and made some money she decides to kind of see 
what it will be like to leave America and return to her home. She does make a success of it. Uh, Binze has a very different experience in the UK. It doesn't go well. He not only experiences racism and the horribly classist and very structured society that is the United Kingdom, he does not have a great international experience and he also returns to Nigeria. It's not an immediate falling back into each other's arms. There are other people, there are other lovers, there are structural things wrong with them getting back together, but they are drawn together. And I just found reading a love story, even with all of its complications and turning points, I don't know, it's not the real world. And I just really liked it. Yeah. And love is always nice. Love is lovely. And it's nice to dive into a book I think especially this year, right, to dive into a book when it feels like the world is literally on fire and just care about two people who are falling in love again. Yeah, it made me think about love, of course, but missing family, missing home, missing friends and what it means to make that effort to make a choice, change your life, go somewhere else, go where you're loved and where you can find love. All right, well, now is time for our weekly recommendations. Jam, this topic was your choice. What do you recommend in terms of comfort reading? Okay, so last week I went to town on recommendations of cookbooks. I'm holding myself back, but I've still got one. So I need to recommend for comfort. I I hear the word comfort and I think about food, not just eating it, mostly eating it, but not just eating it, but cooking it. Because to me... That is how I feel comforted. Comfort food has such reverence for me, not just the things we associate with comfort, you know, soups and stews and the rest, but comfort food in the sense of the food of my childhood or food that I cook that my grandmothers used to cook for me. So I feel like I'm keeping them alive somehow or the comfort of food at the moment for me is also eating food delivered by my favorite restaurants because I can't go there the way I would normally with friends. So I have been cooking a lot and very soon in this second part of this episode, Astrid, we are going to be interviewing the extraordinary chef Helen Go. She and Yota Motolangi wrote a cookbook called Sweet a few years back now and it is my sugary treat bible and let me tell you astrid i'm here for the sugary treats in 2020 jam i really wish i was living within the five kilometer radius where we could like do some kind of very sneaky meat on the street and you could feed me that's very true we could exercise to a common point and sadly sadly we cannot which means i'm left eating all of the tahini choc chip cookies The other one I want to recommend, Astrid, is a novel which is called A Gentleman in Moscow. Have you read it? No, I haven't. It sounds kind of fun. It's so rare that I get a book that Astrid hasn't read. A Gentleman in Moscow is by Amos Towles. And the reason I'm recommending it is that I absolutely fell in love with the protagonist, not in romantic love, just I wish you were in my life kind of love. His name is Alexander Rostov, who in 1922 is sentenced to house arrest in the Grand Metropole Hotel. So that's the premise. I don't think it's surprising that I feel comforted right now by a book where someone is stuck in the same building all of the time. There are some grim moments in parts because of the history that's the backdrop to this book, but on the whole, it is warm and tender and loving and really wholesome. 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 And I find that 
comforting, very comforting. Astrid, over to you. What are you reading for comfort right now? Well, for the first time, Jam, I actually came up stumped. So I thought, okay, I mean, I recommended and love Americana, which we've discussed. But when I thought, okay, what do I really want to do? I want to literally put on my favorite hoodie and get under my comfy Duna and read. And historically, since I was a really young teenager, I've read genre, I've read the fantasy genre. And one of the comforting things about that genre is you get a trilogy or a set of five or a set of 10 and it's comforting just to continue to read and be in a world. And it's like escapist, right? You're you're not visiting the world, you're living there for a while, right? Yeah, and that is comforting. And there are some obvious classics like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis, which I read really young. Also Isabel Carmody's Oba Newton series, and she is a female Australian author. But as an adult, I don't really feel like picking up Game of Thrones again. And I am currently slowly making my way through the Witcher series, which is a work in translation. It's by the Polish writer Andrzej Sapkowski. But I realised my desire for genre means that they're kind of either dead white men or living white men, and I don't really feel like giving them my attention this year, if I can say that in public. And I would like some recommendations for some great fantasy by female writers, and particularly female writers of colour. So anyone listening to this podcast, please just let me know your recommendations. I would really love to disappear into some great fantasy by women. Astrid, I would love to help you out with some recommendations because I love reading books for, about and by women of colour. But as you know, I have a problem with fantasy in that I never read it. So I've got nothing for you. You do have a problem with fantasy and that is one of my goals in life. I am going to, I need to do something to move you on from this block that you have. But I would also say when I did look at my shelves for series written by women, I came up with a few crime series. So Jane Harper and Dervla McKinnon both write female crime series. Jane is Australian. Dervla has made Australia her home after leaving Ireland after the GFC. But again, my shelves are empty of long form series by women of color. And I'm kind of irritated at myself actually. And I am desperate for some recommendations. Everyone, that is a call to not so much arms, but a call to messages. We need you to send us on any medium of your choice, your recommendations for Astrid's next fantasy reading project that involves women of colour, always written by a woman of colour. That is your challenge, friends. Please make sure that you repay the favour of recommendations, which Astrid pays forward so generously every week. That is about all we have time for on comfort. Please go and bury yourself in a book, whether it's a cookbook, some non-fiction wisdom from a Buddhist monk, or some beautiful love stories that always make you feel at home. My name's Jamila Rizvi. You've been with Astrid Edwards and myself on Anonymous Was a Woman, and we will be back later this week with Helen Go. In the meantime, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review while you're there. That would be a comforting thing for myself and Astrid. We'll see you in a few days. 